Welcome to the first season of Murder and 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder and 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. East Millinocket is a small town with a population of only 2,300 back in 1980. It was a paper mill town smack dab in the middle of Maine. At one point, the Great Northern Paper Company was the world's largest supplier of newsprint and it's where Pam McLean chose to raise her two daughters, Joyce and her younger sister, Wendy. It was summertime, and school break was half over, and already the summer was starting to wind down. Sixteen-year-old Joyce was outgoing, blonde and blue-eyed with a big smile. Everyone in town knew who she was. She was on the honor roll, a cheerleader, president of the chorus, a member of student council, played all kinds of musical instruments, and was involved in the theater. She felt the usual pressures of being a teenager and wanted to get in shape over the summer, so she was swimming, cycling, and jogging. On Friday, August 8, 1980, Joyce babysat and took the children to the city swimming pool. Later, she rode her bike eight miles. She arrived home at 7 p.m., the hot sun had begun to fade, and the evening had cooled down just enough so that she could go for a jog. A few minutes later, she was standing in the kitchen, putting her hair up. Wearing her pink, white, and blue terry cloth running gear and her white running shoes, she headed out. Her mom was sitting on the front steps, and she yelled, See you later, Mom. Later, Pam left a note for Joyce to remind her to find the cat and bring her bike in. Joyce didn't have a specific jogging route or specific time that she ran every day, but rather she went wherever she felt like it at that moment. Meanwhile, court records revealed that over at the Skank High School, a group of teenagers had gathered, as teens often do on a Friday night. Two of those were 19-year-old Scott and Leroy. Sometime between 6.30 and 7.30 p.m., the two walked away from the high school and toward the little league field, drinking whiskey out of a bottle. At 7.55 p.m., the sun was just starting to set, when three people noticed Joyce jogging on Orchard Street, about a mile from her home. She appeared tired from a day of swimming, biking, and now jogging. That was the last time anyone saw Joyce. She turned off and went down a dirt road, behind the little league field at the high school, past a soccer field, and onto a path into a wooded area that led to the clear cut by the power lines. Scott pounced on Joyce, surprising her. She fought back by kicking him in the leg. He used a piece of blue cloth to tie her hands behind her back. Then he removed some of her clothes. He grabbed a white glass electrical insulator that was laying on the ground, wrapped his fingers around it, and hit Joyce in the back of the head. He hit her so hard that the blow crushed her skull. Scott panicked and fled. 
At 8.15 p.m., Leroy was spotted back at the high school. He was pacing and talking to himself. Half an hour later, as darkness set in, a police officer spotted Scott with Leroy at the school. Joyce's mother Pam arrived home at 10 p.m. and noticed Joyce's bike still outside and knew something was wrong. A summer storm had arrived. The skies broke open, lightning flashed, and the thunder rolled as torrential rains beat down on East Millinocket. Pam made frantic phone calls looking for her daughter. Then, in the pounding rain, she drove around looking for her, but the rain made it difficult to see. Around 3 a.m. that night, Scott stole a fuel truck. He didn't get far before he crashed it into another vehicle. When emergency personnel arrived, they discovered the truck on its side and Scott pinned inside unconscious. He was transported to the hospital, and in the intensive care unit he was diagnosed with a concussion, fracture to his skull, fractured thigh bone, and remained in a coma for eight days. The next morning, a group organized a search party. Joyce's father reported her missing at 1.20 that afternoon. They searched all day with no success and called it off after dark. They planned to continue it early the next morning. Peter, one of the searchers, got an early start Sunday. Around 6 a.m. he was walking across the field when he spotted something. He yelled out, but the air was silent. As he got closer, he could tell it was a person, and they weren't moving. Then he recognized it was Joyce. Her almost naked body lay face down, her hands still tied behind her. Peter ran home and called police. WGME News reported that when Pam saw the police chief coming up her walk, she knew it was bad news. He could not speak. She asked him if they found Joyce, and he nodded his head, yes. She asked, is she dead? And again, he nodded yes. Then she asked if she had been killed, and he said yes. Police responded quickly, and a dog was brought in to assist investigators. Several pieces of Joyce's clothing were found, buried under rocks 75 and 100 feet away. They also found a partially broken glass electrical insulator. Ten game wardens walked in the area, shoulder to shoulder, searching for evidence. But they would find little. The killer had a 35-hour head start to remove or destroy any evidence, and any that might have been left behind was washed away by the torrential rains that night. They found no hair, no blood, and no fingerprints. And making the search more difficult, was that the small town of 2300 has swelled by a thousand people that weekend. People who arrived to work on a construction project and those who came to attend a Women's State softball tournament. An autopsy was performed and the medical examiner ruled it a homicide. Joyce was killed by blunt trauma to her head and neck. At the funeral home, the undertaker did not want Pam looking at her daughter's body. 
her head injuries made it impossible to prepare her body for viewing. This was the first murder in East Millinocket in over 41 years. Gossip and rumors swirled around the small town, blurring the lines between fact and fiction. The Bangor Daily News reported that investigators sent some of the items found at the crime scene to Toronto's Royal Canadian Mounted Police Lab for examination with advanced laser equipment, lasers that could help locate fingerprints on clothing. A minimum of three detectives were working around the clock. They spoke to witnesses and several names came up, including Scott and Leroy. But police were unable to talk to Scott due to his injuries from the car accident, which included a brain injury. Police announced that they were narrowing down their list of suspects and even had used hypnosis in questioning witnesses. But they wouldn't release any information about the testing done on the evidence in the lab in Toronto. Court records indicated that on September 18th, six weeks after Joyce's murder, a detective interviewed Scott. His full name is Philip Scott Fournier, but he goes by his middle name. He stated that he had been drinking that day with Leroy, but at another school, and that he didn't know Joyce. A month after Joyce's murder, investigators reached out to the Federal Bureau of Investigation's Behavioral Sciences Division. They provided a psychological profile of the killer, but again, police weren't releasing the results. In March 1981, it had been seven months since Joyce's murder, and police had conducted almost 800 interviews. They released a composite sketch of an unidentified jogger seen in the area around the time of her murder. The black-and-white pencil sketch showed a young man with short dark hair parted to the side, with a long nose and narrow dark eyes. Pam was concerned about her other daughter, Wendy. She said that it was like she had lost two daughters that day, and that Wendy would never be the same. She felt that Joyce knew her killer and that it was someone she wasn't afraid of. She felt strongly that someone in their small town knew something. The townspeople were frustrated with the lack of an arrest. They rallied and pledged a reward of $5,000 for information leading to an arrest and conviction. Within a month, the reward doubled to $10,000, and eventually it doubled again to $20,000. The investigation went down the wrong path for a short time when a message had been found scrawled on the town's mill that said, Help me before I kill again. Eventually, police discovered that it had been written before Joyce's death. Mysterious phone calls appeared on both Pam and the high school's phone bills. All but one were accounted for, a collect call to Joyce's home. When Scott finally left the hospital, he was admitted into a substance abuse program and didn't return to East Millinocket until late December. Finally, on May 5, 1981, nine months after Joyce's murder, investigators interviewed him again. They returned to the crime scene. Scott led them down the path, past the soccer field, and to the exact spot by the power lines 
where her body had been found. He told investigators that he had tripped over her body and accurately described its condition. Court records reveal that a week later, Scott asked his stepfather to drive him to his pastor's home so that he could speak with him. Now, Pastor Thomas knew both Joyce and Scott as they'd attended a youth group at his church. At his meeting with Pastor Thomas, he confessed to killing Joyce with the glass insulator. But Pastor Thomas didn't believe him. So Scott asked what he'd have to do to get him to believe him. And he said he'd have to confess to his parents. When his parents arrived, he told them, and I quote, I am sorry, Mama. I killed Joyce McLean. I didn't mean to. Pastor Thomas then drove Scott to the Bangor Police Department. He was interviewed by two Maine State Police detectives. He told them that she had been tied with a rope and had been cut. He also said that she had kicked him in the leg and that he had hit her once with an insulator. But then he added that he had a feeling that three guys sexually assaulted her, which didn't match the evidence. So detectives did not arrest Scott. He was free to go. Three days later, another detective interviewed Scott. This time, he mentioned being at a party Friday night and that he'd left alone and was walking near the power lines when he tripped over Joyce. He felt her arm with his hand and that it was cold. He picked himself up and ran off. In June, ten months after her murder, a scholarship was established at the high school in Joyce's memory. Friends of Joyce's erected a white cross where she had been murdered so that she would not be forgotten. Also, they hoped that perhaps her murderer would see it and turn themselves in. Police announced that they had uncovered new leads and maybe getting close to an arrest, but they wouldn't state when it might happen, but that they were confident. In January 1982, investigators found new physical evidence and sent it to the FBI's lab for analysis. But again, they would not say what they had discovered or the results of the testing. Police alluded to the fact that they were seeking particular people as their prime suspects, but would not identify them. They did agree with Joyce's mother that she likely knew her killer. A few years after Joyce's murder, Scott was attending Alcoholics Anonymous. There, he met Ken Woodbury. One night at 2 a.m., Scott showed up at Ken's apartment that he shared with his wife, Karen. He confessed to them that he killed Joyce. That week, he went to Ken's apartment two or three times, and each time talked about her murder. Neither Ken or his wife contacted police. In 1984, police told Pam that the case was going to be brought to the grand jury, but that didn't happen. A year later, her grandmother was visiting Joyce's grave when police approached her and told her they had leads and would keep her informed, but she didn't hear back from police. In 1986, it had been six years since her murder, and police announced that they had the murder weapon, but they would not release what it was. 
They said that recent information led to an additional detective being assigned to the case, but they wouldn't say what that information was. Joyce's mother, Pam, was frustrated with the progress on her daughter's case. She didn't deny that police were working hard. They told her they would keep her informed, but they didn't. Often she found out details in the media or via the town gossip. Police had told her details of her daughter's murder, details that only she, the police, and the killer knew. They instructed Pam to keep quiet and to not talk about it. She did her part, and she expected the police to do theirs. And when they didn't, she wrote the Attorney General requesting that Joyce's case be moved to another agency. Her request was denied. The Attorney General stated that you don't just change for the sake of change. That would just be asking someone to do work that has already been done. And that he felt a change would do nothing to add to the quality of the investigation. Every year without fail, Joyce's mother and grandmother posted a memorial to her in the local newspaper. In the Bangor Daily News, Pam posted, Your smile was what people would notice. It was like a rainbow. People would look at you and know it was going to be a wonderful day. Through your smile, they could see the sunshine. You were still loved and we all miss you. Another year, her grandmother wrote, that we wonder what her life would have been like, and that she made a vow to Joyce to never let her case die, to keep it alive as long as she was alive. Nineteen years later, her family were still waiting for answers. The townspeople never forgot Joyce. They petitioned the TV show Unsolved Mysteries to feature her murder, and it aired in February 1989. A few months later, Scott started a new job as a janitor at the Hudson College. On his first day, his supervisor, John DeRoche, asked a few questions to get to know him. And when he found out where he was from, he asked him if he knew about Joyce's murder. The response he got floored him. Scott replied that he knew about it because he was the one who killed her. Then John asked him how he did it. And he replied, with a glass insulator. Now the only ones that knew about the insulator were police and the killer. He later asked why he hadn't been arrested, and Scott told him he'd been interviewed over 20 times and had beat them all. John told the security at the college about Scott, but that information was never passed on to police. In the 1990s, evidence was tested for DNA, but the analysis did not reveal anything. 25 years after her murder, Pam still kept her daughter's things tucked away at her home, the same home that Joyce grew up in. She couldn't bring herself to move. Wendy had grown up, moved away, and now had a family of her own. Over the years, forensics and testing techniques had changed substantially. In 2008, Pam lobbied authorities to exhume Joyce's body. Her gut told her that there just might be something there that would help them find her killer. 
authorities refused, stating that when her body was returned to her family for burial, it had left their chain of evidence, so anything found could not be tied specifically to her killer. But the town of East Millinocket were not easily deterred. They raised $18,000 to have Joyce's body exhumed and a second autopsy performed by renowned forensic experts Dr. Henry Lee and Dr. Michael Bowden. The coffin was in excellent shape, and when they opened it, they discovered her remains were well-preserved. And tucked in lovingly beside Joyce were letters written to her long ago. Letters that might contain DNA. Over the years, Scott had been investigated for numerous crimes, including sexual assault, burglary, theft, and child abuse. In 2009, he was found guilty of possession of child pornography and received a six-year sentence. In a pre-sentence report prepared by the U.S. Department of Probation and Pretrial Services, it mentioned that Scott was a person of interest in Joyce's murder. In handing down the sentence, the judge took the unusual step and publicly named Scott as a person of interest and encouraged him to tell investigators what he knew. This was the first time a person of interest had been publicly named. Pam recalled that his name was one of the ones mentioned to her by police not long after Joyce's murder. In 2010, investigators interviewed Ken and Karen Woodbury and discovered that Scott had confessed to them 27 years earlier. Scott was released from prison in January 2015. Just over a year later, on March 4, 2016, he was finally arrested for Joyce's murder. It had been nearly 36 years. Court records indicated that police had interviewed Scott a total of 22 times between 1980 and 2015. And remember John, his boss at the college? When he saw Scott's arrest on the news, he contacted police to tell them about Scott's confession 27 years earlier. Scott rejected a plea offer and waived a jury trial. His trial by judge began in February 2018 and lasted 11 days. His defense lawyer tried to say that his inconsistent confessions couldn't be relied on due to his brain injury and that there was no DNA evidence linking him to the murder. Although Scott's story changed over the years and throughout his many interviews with police, his details and knowledge of the evidence was consistent. Details that the police had never released and that only the killer would know. What changed were the names of people he provided to throw suspicion onto others. However, every single one of them was ruled out after investigators confirmed their alibis. Joyce's mother took the stand and stood face to face with Scott. His former boss John's testimony recalled Scott's confession and was a key point for the prosecution. In the end, the judge could not ignore Scott's confessions throughout the years to his priest, mother, father, Ken, Karen, and John. After 37 and a half years, he was found guilty. Scott showed no emotion, no reaction. He was sentenced to 45 years in prison, 
his attempt to appeal his conviction was denied. Throughout the years, her mother always asked, Why Joyce? Well, we'll never know. Sometimes a victim is simply in the wrong place at the wrong time. Joyce did nothing wrong that day when evil crossed her path. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Robert Spangler. Serial killers usually group their murders close together, but not Bob. There were 15 years between murdering his first wife and his third wife. Some would say he gave her the Grand Canyon divorce. Find out why, after 22 years, he finally confessed. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or murderin20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effects from Vaseline Studios and Quick Sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers. <laughs>